Hello, I'm Derek Duncan. Welcome to the Feed the Ball podcast. My guest for episode one is golf architect Jim Eng. In his long career as a golf course architect, both in the U.S. and overseas, Jim has designed some of the most entertaining and visually distinctive courses in the business. The club at Black Rock in Idaho, the Creek Club in Georgia, the golf club at Redlands Mesa and Lakota Canyon on Colorado's western slope, the sanctuary in Fossil Trace near Denver. Each of these golf courses bear an unmistakably joyous imprint, with greens stretched and contoured in otherworldly dimensions, bunkers cut deep into the earth, wide fairways set up to entice an array of shots from different angles, and plenty of scoring opportunities if you can just unlock your imagination. Jim joined me from Arizona recently to talk about the ideas and inspiration behind his design style, what motivates him when he takes on a project, and other thoughts about the game. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So the name of the podcast is Feed the Ball, which to me are the kind of the three most interesting words in golf because they denote the concept of a ball rolling on the ground, landing in one place and finishing someplace else. I couldn't think of a better person to speak to who designs courses that embody that concept of kind of playing away from the flag or playing away from a target and letting the ball roll to where you ultimately need it to go. So thanks for joining me. And uh, I guess that's an entree into our conversation uh, about how you design golf courses. One time we were together, uh, you mentioned to me that you were in the image creation business. Do you still feel that way? And can you explain that concept to me a little bit? Well, I think there's there's several goals that, that at least I have in the industry. I don't know how others would answer this, but certainly image creation is, is um, regarding your client and, and his goal to uh, have a profitable experience out of the project and thus have more projects, certainly. Uh, the image creation part is to put something out that's, uh, you know, a bit of an art form that people talk about that's interesting, unique, you know, fun to play. That's got to be the, the number one goal is fun. Uh, but it's, it, uh, it's something that, that gains attention for your client and for the project. I, I like that for two reasons. One, because you don't shy away from the idea of creation. You know, over the last 15, 20 years, uh, the Vogue idea that gets most of the accolades in golf is, is to not create. It's kind of the opposite, uh, the notion of discovering golf and golf holes and golf courses. Uh, when you say image creation business, you don't shy away from that. And it's also the idea that you are putting something specific out there for players to look at, and you are the author of that. I guess I'll use that to kind of talk about something else. You know, the golf landscape has changed so much in the last 10 years since the recession. Has that changed the way you approach what you do? Uh, I think it has to, um, simply because there's less money to be spent on on doing, uh, you know, incredible projects, although we've never spent very much money on any of our projects, believe it or not, because we're incredibly efficient in how we work with uh, with our documents. And, uh, you know, that's a whole nother topic of discussion. Um, but I think, you know, we're going to have to get used to more brown fairways, which I like. We have to get used to, uh, um, you know, le- less cart paths. We're going to have to get used to a lot of things that uh, in the next coming years for developers who want to do golf courses, they're going to have to be more economically feasible, I believe. So I think on that accord, you're correct. Um, more talking to, you know, creating things. Uh, I'm, I am a great believer in finding golf holes. However, um, in my career, uh, you know, my first projects and uh, subsequently projects after that have always been on tremendously rugged sites. And, uh, you know, the first project we had in the U.S. and, uh, and going out on my own was, sanctuary and that was a course that uh, many said couldn't put, have a golf course put on it and fortunately I didn't know that <laughs> so we went out and put a golf course on it but uh, you know then you kind of get uh, get labeled into that so you have to create at times but you'll sometimes you have to create in order to preserve and for example if you, uh, I specifically think of the third hole uh, at Black Rock and the fact that it was a very steep severe valley and what we did was we filled the valley with rock up to the point where where we were wide enough for a fairway, and then we left alone. And we just put grass on top of that. Now, there was drainage issues and structural issues and things that had to go into that, but the golfer doesn't need to know that. The fact that 
that, that once you fill the fairway, fill the valley up in the bottom to create the fairway, then everything around it remains untouched. And it looks incredibly natural because the, 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 the golf hole sits in what looks like the natural valley bottom when in fact it's 30 feet below that. But all of the trees and, and vegetation and rocks and things around it remain in their natural state. So sometimes you have to do a whole lot of creating to preserve in nature what's there. So I'm a huge fan of taking the things in nature and, and preserving them. The golf holes that you build, I guess if there's a criticism about your design, which uh, I've, you've probably heard criticisms before in certain certain uh, places, is that the golf holes may not look natural. You know, you compare them to the other high accolade courses over the last period of time I've, I've referenced earlier uh, with the windswept look and the natural blowout bunkers. Your your courses are, are highly designed and uh, the construction is very specific. Obviously, that doesn't bother you. Well, at times. There are, there are times to do that, and there are times to uh, to go with the flow of the land. For example, we did a Warry Dunes in, uh, in the fringe of the Sandhills in, in Kearney, Nebraska, and that was very much untouched. Uh, and and you know, most of the green sites were left as they were. Uh, for example, Four Mile Ranch in Canyon City, Colorado, again, very much untouched, very little dirt move. But it was the site that was given to us that was presented for that purpose. And so uh, I like to be flexible enough to say, well, gee, I'm not just going to work on the perfect site with, with rolling sand. I know there are some that, that kind of go that direction. I go, listen, if I'm going to be good enough to be in this business, I'm going to be good enough to work on any, any site given to me and make the best of it. You mentioned before that you have worked on plenty of rugged sites. Do you feel like you are kind of look to as someone who is an expert on that field or you're having expertise so you continue to get rugged sites or uh, did that limit you in any way those early courses like Sanctuary and Redland Mesa which are very stark and rugged and there's a lot of elevation changes has that have you been labeled as an architect who is uh, proficient at rugged sites to the exclusion of maybe yeah, other sites? I, I think this I think to some degree that's a fair statement and uh, and I don't mind it I love those projects they're they're incredibly challenging you have to be uh, to be able to think and in, in, in envision certainly in three dimensions. Then you need to be able to put it on uh, on a contour on, on paper or on computer and and have those thoughts so that they will not be changed. They have to be good enough in your mind. You have to be good enough to picture it in your mind. Then you have to be able to throw it to paper. Then you have to be able to build it because if if you make a mistake on a sandy site, it's no big deal. You just do whatever you do, and you just blow over it, and, and it's all fixed. If you make that same mistake on on a mountain sort of site, uh, you could you could end up costing millions of dollars just to fix one one thing that you hadn't thought of, or you might end up with you know a pond that's above a fairway because you didn't have your uh, you didn't have your sight lines correct. So those are that's why the the mountain sites to me are very fun and very interesting. Uh, but I also like being able to find golf holes. And sometimes the combination of that is that um, you have both of those within a project. And obviously that's great fun. So it's, you know, it's about uh, preserving what's there to the maximum extent. extent. And, and then, you know, getting into the, the fun aspect of, of golf. And I think this is kind of where um, you had talked about earlier about having to find holes. I'm a great believer that Part of the experience, well, golf golf was developed, golf was invented as a pastime to be fun. The walk from the sea, of, uh, from the town of St. Andrews to the sea and work. And they picked up sticks and rocks and beat them along the way, and then golf developed into what it developed into. And purely as fun as a pastime, that's why golf came about. Now, somewhere along the way, it's turned into a, a historical element. It turned into a... a you know, a social element, it's, to, it's turned into uh, a lot of different things than, than just fun. Um, you know, when you have uh, uh, the state of golf today where the, the opinions of golf come from tour players, that's, you know, they're out there for a different reason and, than the average player. And so I think we forget the game should be fun and the, the best courses should be the ones that are most fun. And along that line, 
one of the most fun aspects of golf in my mind is to have interesting, unique, and creative golf holes slash features slash experiences every single time. So I take great pride in, in that any holes on my courses will never look the same. Within, within that golf hole course, you're not going to find any two holes that jump out at you and say, I am this, and that's the same as the other holes, because they're not. They will jump out and say, I am this, and I'm unique. So you go to the next one and go, oh, wow, that's that. Oh, wow, that's that. To me, that's part of the fun, aesthetic ride and trying to understand the human psyche during a round of golf. I think that got a little bit off your question, but <laughs> yeah, I covered a bunch of bases there. You, Brent, you mentioned uh, tour players and that mentality, and, and per- perhaps there's something wrong uh, by spending too much time thinking about that. Do you spend time thinking about that side of the game, that 1% in, in how you approach design? Does that affect you at all? It doesn't, not unless I'm asked to design a, a, a tour course, which I haven't. You know, it's very easy to design difficult golf courses. It's much harder to design a fun, playable golf course that, that has great aesthetic value. Now, um, the difference, boy, this is, a, this is an interesting question because the, the difference in ability of a tour player versus, let's say, just a good scratch golfer, still an amateur. In the 60s, the good scratch player could actually see the tour players kind of on the horizon in ability. In today's world, the, the good scratch player is closer to a 12 handicap in ability than he is to the tour players, meaning that the spread in ability has gotten so much bigger. Part of it's technology. Part of it's the fact that, you know, uh, they have their, their, their uh, shafts synced to their drivers, synced to their balls, synced to their ball speed, their spin, spin rates, and, and, and the fact that they're bigger, stronger, and the money is, is bigger uh, in it, and they practice and play more. So the separation has gotten huge. So to say that um, I could go out and design a, a golf course that would fairly challenge the tour players, it would be a golf course that none of the rest of us can play. And that comes along so rarely that, in fact, no, I don't think about, about it from that angle. So I, I'm out. I'm out. I'd, I'd take the – I'll take the – the uh, the opinion of a 15 handicap player that's out there for fun over that of a tour player of the quality of a golf course, simply because tour players, and I mean this with all due respect, tour players when they play, they have to be in such a tunnel of focus that that they don't see the enjoyment factor of what the golf course can and will present to them, and so uh, they don't really get the whole picture. And, and I, you know, I, I worked with a few tour players early in my career, and I asked one time, I said, what are your favorite courses? And I said, well, this and this. I go, well, aren't those the two places you won? And he goes, yes. And didn't, didn't <laughs> understand where I was heading with that. Yeah. So, you know, as good as they, they are tremendous, they're, they're tremendous athletes, and they're incredibly talented. But I think in today's world, we take the value of, of the opinion of the quality of a golf course from them, and I think that should, that's overrated, and I think it's probably held the game back in some ways. Yeah, the challenge is for someone like myself and others who really focus on golf courses and travel and architecture, that's what interests us. There really isn't that large of a piece of the pie of interest overall golfers. You know, so much of the golf media is focused on the tour and equipment and things like that. So when we do get to talk about architecture, the tour concept and how far they hit the ball and, and those types of courses bleeds over into ordinary talk about good golf courses and places to go and visit and what constitute good holds and not. So it seems to me, I, I think I'm agreeing with you that we, we, there's too much interest or emphasis put on this small percentage of people and the way they play golf and how it affects uh, golf course design in general, because they're really two separate things in all in almost all practical cases. Well, I agree with that, and and you know back to the tour thing. I think there there are a couple of, there are a few guys that I've met and spoken to that are that are really open minded about about uh, seeing things, and, and they have a creative spirit. Um, Rich Beam is one of them. He's a, become a friend, and we've talked about doing things together. But you know he's <clears throat> he's a little out there as far as guys on the tour, but he's He's, a, he's really into the creative side of, of, the, of the golf experience, which I found uh, quite refreshing. So, 
you know, there are guys out there that can do it, so I don't want to put them all into a box. But uh, but for the most part, yeah, I agree with exactly with what you're saying. Yeah. Just for any uh, listeners out there who aren't familiar with Jim's courses, Google them, look at pictures. They're they're really unique in the golf world. Uh, the way he designs holes, uh, I feel like he, uh, you give a lot of width off the tee to accommodate, you know, uh, slightly errant play. A lot of the there's a lot of banks, a lot of uh, cupping. The greens are, uh, I'll just say it, often outrageous. But uh, there's good reason for that. You can carom shots uh, off the off the flanks, let the ball roll. There are collection areas. Uh, they're very unique and, and, in my opinion, very fun to play. Uh, and one of the concepts I want to explore in this podcast is sort of this intersection between golf course design as art versus engineering versus business. And obviously it has to be parts of all three. But where do you come out on this? I, I get the feeling that the, the, the artistic side, as you've mentioned, uh, is high on that list, whereas other architects are probably a little bit more inclined to uh, be salesmen and others are more inclined to get down in the dirt and look at it as an engineering problem. Uh, I wonder if you could kind of just speak to how you view this intersection of art, business, engineering, or any other elements that influence the way you approach. Well, I think the business side certainly has to be foremost. But in saying that, I sell my business side of it because of the fact that I think that golf is an art form. Uh, It is one of the only art forms of which uh, you get to experience the art form from within. You know, architecture, bridges, uh, would be another. But yeah, I know it's the only art form that you get to compete against the art form. So given that sort of handle, as we come out of the shoot, you have such an advantage over all other art forms that you, you really don't want to uh, minimize your opportunities to create an experience for someone that truly moves them or... or, or I guess that's the right word that truly moves them or inspires them. And sometimes you have to go to the outrageous. Um, you know, we talked about Mike Strands, you and I, and the, mm-hmm. and the uh, respect I have for the work that he did in, in trying to push the envelope, you know, a little bit and uh, and come up with different things. Now, uh, some the, the outrageous side always has to be associated with the playable side. I only have two rules in this industry. Now, there's a book out there that I haven't ever seen that has all these rules of do's and don'ts, and you can't have this, and you can't do that, and you can't do that. You know, you can't put a tree in the middle of the fairway. You, you can't <laughs> you can't have dinosaur fossils in the middle of the fairway. You know, what? I've never even... I've, I've, <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I've never, I've never uh, come across this particular book, but my only two rules are it has to be playable and it has to be fun. And... So the, the outrageous part is that things may look outrageous, but if you put interest and intrigue into it, you can figure out a way to get this done. And uh, I think you played Creek Club at Reynolds Plantation, haven't you? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the, the roles in those greens are outrageous. There's no doubt about it. But the, 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 yeah, the, madness, some. the madness to the sciences, you'll realize that all of those holes were sitting in the bottom of of, of what I call a drainage spine or, a, you know, a, a little valley. And the bottom of those valleys were at 1%, meaning that they were very flattish, so that the ball will always settle. So no matter how you try and figure out, you might have to hit it five different, and you might have to hit it a direction in which the ball goes three or four or five different directions before it finally settles in the bottom of the hole, but the ball will always settle in the area around the hole. So it's the fun part of figuring out the little roller coaster ride on some hole that the outrageous is actually playable, or, or in fact, that things are much more difficult than they appear, or things are, are look very difficult, but they are actually much easier than they appear. So that that's part of the art form of seeing how far you can push the envelope before you go too far. I know I've gone too far at times, but if I hadn't gone too far, I wouldn't know where the edge of the envelope is. Mm-hmm. And so as you get older and older, you realize, okay, this is how far I can push it. Uh, this is what the goal is. This is what the green speeds are going to be. And, you know, that's one of the issues is sometimes you design a, a green to be certain speed and, and uh, the course decides that they want it to be faster or slower. And so, you know, there becomes a bit of an issue in that point. But, uh, you know, that's a small minor point. Yeah, I don't recall ever playing a hole before where I saw the golf ball roll past the cup two or three times before it finally stopped. Um, and, yeah. Isn't that the definition of feed the ball? 
Have Absolutely, I- it is. Yeah, you you more than once. Uh, so your course is the uh, more than anybody else's courses at any time that I can think of. Maybe Mike Strands, but there's there's a slight learning curve to playing them. When if you go out and you're not familiar with the way you design holes and greens, um, you're probably going to be frustrated the first time. If you have a I guide so. or you've you've played it before, uh, you start to learn these things about aiming away or using backstops. And once you do that, it becomes a completely way to envision golf shots. Speaking of the Creek Club, which is at uh, a private course at Lake Oconee in Georgia, part of the uh, the former Reynolds Plantation, it's now called Reynolds Lake Oconee. Beautiful golf site, but some very, very extreme greens. And the members there took them a little while to understand how to play the holes. But once they did, the feedback was was positive, and they learned that, you know, you might have a putt that rolls over a crest to a lower pin. There's no way to die the ball near the cup. The play is to play it intentionally, maybe 10, 12 feet past the pin, hit the upslope, and let the ball roll back to the pin from the other side. That's just not something that you experience every day. How often do you get do you get feedback from uh, members of the clubs you've designed or, or public players who have played your course, and what can you take away? Do they typically always come around to uh, understanding how to play the golf course, in your opinion? I think there's, there's um, several answers to, to that question, and, and the, one of the first ones is that I remember seeing uh, Seve Ballesteros hit a shot that was, he hit a flop shot, and he was like 10 feet from the hole, but he hit it 30 feet past the hole, and then it came back to the hole, and they all called him brilliant and creative and imaginative, and I thought, wow, that's cool. And, you know, in, in Scotland and Ireland, that seems to, to, to be the case. So there's a bit of a, a double standard in that, in that, and eh, maybe that's the wrong word, but I'm going to run with it. <laughs> um, in the, in the, uh, in Scotland and Ireland, those kind of shots are, are interesting and unique and cool. For some reason in the U.S., they're unfair and this and that by some, not by all, obviously, but, uh, I think we have to understand that, that golf gets a different look at it depending on where it is you are standing when you, uh, when you see that. And, uh, the, uh, the fact, uh, that it takes a while to learn how to play my courses, I think that is one of the greatest benefits. I think the first time you play it, let me, let me put it in terms of music. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a fan of, of all kinds of music and I have, uh, a varied taste, and I have, we all have, you know, favorite albums, and one of my favorite albums uh, I'm going to uh, uh, put out there is called, it's Van Morrison, it's called Back on Top. It was a blues album that he did, and first time I heard it, I was, it could, because it was different than, it was just different for, for Van Morrison um, from what I'd heard before. And so it took me a while, and I first heard it, I wasn't sure if I liked it, and I listened to it more, and I listened to it more, and I listened to it more, and it absorbed into my soul. And then eventually it became one of my very favorite albums because it had so much soul. It was so complex. It took a while to learn. So that's the comparison I would give to my golf courses. From a private point of view, that's exactly what you want. You don't want to be able to figure a golf course out the first time. That would just be a shame. If you've got a few, and there are a lot of those that, that it does happen, but I want mine to have more depth than that. I want them to, to, play it 30, 40, 50 times or however many times, and it's different every time. And so that kind of, I hope that answers the question you were going for. Uh, it was a bit of a long answer, but uh, I think I got there eventually, didn't I? <laughs> Do you uh, encounter members at Predera, a, a golf course south of Denver, uh, that you designed, for instance, or BlackRock? Uh, are there some people that just never come around? I haven't met any that have never come around, and that's either because they don't share those views with me or uh, they just don't join. Whatever it might be, I think everyone always eventually gets it, and that's the confidence. That gives me the confidence to continue going down the path that I am, is that is that uh, it is proven to me that it is what it is. Now, there are you know, I have I have many critics in in the industry, and that's fine. I understand that because I do push the envelope. I do believe that that the majority of the critics that I do have have, have everyone everyone in golf that that plays golf, especially at private clubs, has an agenda of somewhat, and it's usually to make their club look the best. So 
I look at it like, and, and that, that goes for, for me and everyone else as well. And so everyone is human and we all have an agenda because we want our, the things that we're involved with to, to, you know, to be the top. So away we go, you know, down that road and it's easy to, it's easy to take shots on the, on the course that pushes the envelope. But if you go into it, <clears throat> looking at a golf course purely, <clears throat> excuse me, purely as a physical structure and something that's, that will give you enjoyment, and you don't look at it with a historical value that this tournament was played there or this thing happened here or that happened here. I mean, that's the way I have to look at golf courses. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. And I've become, I've, over the years, I've, I've been able to separate the issues that, that, uh, from, a, from a physical structure. So I, I look at it purely as a physical structure and how is that affecting me? How fun is it to play? How, what does it look like? What are the interesting parts of it? And so I'm able to separate that. So I think from um, off on tangent again, I, I will say that that's what podcasts around, are for. <laughs> people come around on, uh, on 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 my courses if given the opportunity. Now I wouldn't say that's true for everyone, but I would say it's true for for a very high majority because it is it is all revolves around fun. And that is the only reason we should be building golf courses. Well, for for the sake of golf, now obviously, residential values and the business aspect is a different entity. But but it, to me, it all revolves around the fun aspect. And to have fun, you have to have uniqueness, variety, intrigue. And to do that, you then have to probably push the envelope a little. I know that there are a lot of golf courses. You know. Um, I saw Royal Port Rush the other day on TV. They had, what, the senior open there? Or, uh, what did they have? They had an event there this year. And I played, I played there. And Port Rush is, is important to me for two, two very different reasons. One, the first hole and the way the bunker kind of uh, on the left of the fairway kind of caves in on itself is where I got the first inkling and inclination of the muscle bunkers that we then produced. Um, sort of as a, let's call it a trademark, even though we don't do them on every project. Uh, and it does, it has become <laughs> sort of, sort of a, a logo for me. But the other one was, I remember going around Port Rush and looking at it, and other than one in 18, and they, I think they've been, since been changed, but one in 18 were, were sort of uh, drabish, uh, flattish holes. But the rest of the course, as you got, as I got into it, I was going, "Wow, this is perfect. This land is absolutely perfect." And I went around in six holes, seventh hole, probably probably by the seventh hole or so. I'm going, you know, um, this whole this course is is perfect to the point it's repetitive, mm. um, and it just it, it, to me the land was was perfectly the same the entire round. The next day, I played Royal Port Stewart, and it was it was wild and dramatic in places. It was flat and open in places. It was rolling in places, and it covered the full spectrum of it rather than just being perfect all the time. And I realized I liked the latter rather than the former. And that's gone a long way to to my feelings on the variety of golf. It's interesting. I saw uh, I think they there's a poll in a magazine recently, and they they asked. I think five, maybe they were all Irish golf PGA or European tour players, their favorite courses and uh, Port Rush was the favorite. And maybe that speaks to sort of the sameness of the holes and uh, which it would be appealing to uh, somebody who's gets paid to be repetitive in their, in their swings versus somebody who's there for the experience, which might grab like yourself, gravitate toward rural point Port Stewart. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. Um, you know, uh, we as human beings tend to gravi- gravitate to the, the things that uh, are important, and and uh, thus we have a higher view of something that you know hel- has held an event. And you know, there have been many tour events, and there, <laughs> there have been many Ryder Cups that have been held on less than than great golf courses, but they all get that same mantra because they held the event. It's also interesting that your idea for your the muscle bunkers actually comes from uh, from Lynx Golf and. Uh... A royal port rush at that. You know, Derek. Everything I do revolves around the courses in Ireland. I, I spent so so many trips and so much time in Ireland, looking and studying and examining. And it, it was 
geez, when was that? It was in the 90s. Um, I couldn't figure out why, I, and I've been going to Ireland since the 80s. Uh, my wife and I lived in, in uh, England, and I worked all over Europe and Asia. I was one of the original, uh, I was the original IMG guy, so the ghost designer for the tour players. And uh, we spent a great deal of time in Ireland. And, uh, I, and after that, I went back and back and back three, four times a year. And just absolutely was fell in love with it, but I couldn't figure out why I fell in love with it. I couldn't figure out why it was so much better than the, the courses that, that I play here in the States. And it took me a long time. And one day, I'm, I'm walking down the first fairway at Carn. And I was looking around, and I was smiling, I was spinning as I was going, and I was laughing to myself. I'm listening to by myself. The other guys I'm playing with are up ahead of me, and they look at me, and they go, they go, man, you were you were giggling, and you were looking and laughing. And I said, what is it? What's going on? I said, I don't know. I, this place just makes me so happy. And it's because of the way that the land is, is naturally random. And the whole experience of what you get just from the landform itself is the important element of what you're doing. And so I, I discovered that, that Ireland, to me, and Karn in particular, I suppose, gave me four hours of an endorphin rush with a smile on my face. Now, how I got it, I guess, isn't important. The fact that I had that feeling on all of those Irish courses was the more important feeling. So I came back armed with that knowledge that it's the endorphins that I'm after. So. You know, I, I, I also I also have been coined as saying I'm an endorphin sale because <laughs> because uh, that is the that is the ultimate goal is to get into someone's head and and and, and release endorphins because of what the art that you just did and sometimes that involves creating it and sometimes it involves finding it but it, it is all about the experience of the golf holes now I knew that that we couldn't bring back Ireland verbatim. And I also knew that I would have to find new ways to try and reach that same goal of the endorphins in somebody's head. And so that's where pushing the envelope has come for me, is trying to find things that are, are so interestingly fun for people that they have a big smile on their face. And that is the ultimate goal. And seeing the, a golf ball react on a golf course or on a green in a way that you don't expect and travel to places that you didn't know it could go is an endorphin rush. I mean, it's very exciting to see your ball land on a green 20 yards away from the pin and all of a sudden start rolling down into this lower area and get close to the hole. I mean, that's a rush. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, absolutely it is. Now, sometimes it may not end up well for you. I'd sometimes, say sometimes it, it may it go the other sometimes, way. <laughs> sometimes it may go the other way. Then you have to you have the endorphin rush of figuring out that five square right. putt. <laughs> you're pissed off, but it, yeah. but I'm sitting here laughing as I as we talk about it, and it, yeah, it's, that's what it's about. It's and it's about doing it. It's about doing it to the point that it's uh, still fun. And it may take you first time. It may madden you. Second time, you might figure it out a little. Fourth, fifteenth time, you might say, "Hey, I got it." So it, it you know it's all about the variety of the experience. You know, I talked about Karn. And that is my favorite course in the world. And the original Eddie Hackett 18 to me is, is, is just, it's, it's, it's a masterpiece that is hard for some people to accept. But I, I've, I've, I've called it, I've called Karn the original 18. I've called it, I've called it so crazy it's bad and so bad it's perfect. And by that I mean that there are holes there that look, you know, incredible, like the moon, and you're just playing over nature. Then there are other holes that are out in the flats that are kind of drab. Then there are holes that they are just the weirdest, quirkiest thing, and they have a man-made look about them <laughs> that, that just doesn't fit. You kind of turn your head sideways, and you're going, wow, that was, that was weird. You know, I don't know if I like that or not, but like much like the Van Morrison album, the more I played it, the more I fell in love with it. And so it's 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 about that unique variety of pushing the emotional envelope. You just spoke about your inspiration from Ireland. Let's go back a little farther. You were born in North Dakota. Did you also grow up there? Uh, yeah, I left there when I was 21. Okay. What was your introduction to golf like, and what was it like playing golf in North Dakota? <laughs> uh, well, it was uh, cold <laughs> at times. Yeah, for um, those two months of the of the year. Yeah, for the <laughs> for, 
for some of the uh, high school events that we had. Yeah, it was it was a little chilly at times, but uh, um, I, it was from my mom and dad. Uh, they were both golfers. My dad was a John Deere dealer in town, and uh, because of that, he got to help uh, lay out the nine-hole course in town because he brought all this machinery with him. And he was a uh, um, World War II fighter pilot that took up golf at 33 and ended up winning two state seniors championships. He was a lefty hockey player that had a horrible golf swing, but somehow he made it work. And, hockey uh, players usually have are pretty good at golf. Oh, they, he was very good it's at that golf. He just, action had, he, just had his, he just had his own, well, that's just that. He had, uh, he had Jim Furyk's hands, you know. It didn't matter whether he went with it, but he always got there at the, at the end. And, you know, and then uh, I, I was raised doing that. My first jobs were uh, raking up uh, aerification cores and, uh, you know, always, always working and, and hanging around the golf course and playing. And, you know, that was, the, that was the summertime activity. Did you get to play a lot of golf with your dad? Yeah, absolutely. Both my mom and my dad, we played, uh, we played a ton of golf together. It was great fun, great memories. And, you know, you always see these, these uh, questions of, you know, who would be your dream foursome? And I'm, you know, they're all talking about touring pros and this and that. Sure. Movie stars are going, heck no, it'd be my dad, my mom, and probably my wife, Moni. Uh, did that ever get and to that, happen? And, and, now, and now my kids are going to be mad at me, so we're going to have to have a six of them. <laughs> oh, so are your parents still around? No, unfortunately, uh, they passed away quite uh, a while ago. Okay. So I imagine you didn't take a lot of inspiration golf course wise from your upbringing in North Dakota. There's probably a lot more. To, there's more to see there today than I'm sure when you were growing up. Well, you, you know, the, 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 uh, there's a, that's an interesting question because you know what these guys laid out. It was in a, a, a boxbow type area with uh, a river and some coolies that ran through it, and it was uh, it was laced with water everywhere. And so we had some of the weirdest, funkiest golf holes that you've ever seen. You know, one of them you hit an eight iron, and then you have to rip a three wood to the green on a par four, um, <laughs> unless you could carry. You know, back in the day, you had to carry a two sixty to to get over the get over the river um, and then have a wedge in. So it was uh, it, it was some strange, strange golf holes, but I think that might have, and I didn't even realize at the time, but it might have put my kilter a little bit off. Of ah, normal. there you go. Now we're getting so somewhere. I, I, I'd, never even, I'd never even put that uh, to mind before until you just brought it up, so that was good. Uh, and unfortunately, you went to Colorado State to study landscape <laughs> architecture. I'm sorry to hear yeah. that. I'm, yeah, uh, did, I'm from, did, I, from from Boulder. We didn't get to go to Boulder very often. Yeah. Um, and did you know when you went to to Colorado State that you wanted to get into golf design? I did. I did. I was two years into an architecture program at another school and, and uh, worked with uh, with Dick Phelps, who you never know very well. Um, and we did some, uh, I was a draftsman for an engineering firm that was uh, dealing with uh, a golf course, and Dick was part of that, and boom, the light went off, and I said, this is what I want to do, so I asked Dick how you get into business. And then uh, he said, well, you got to get a landscape architecture degree, get a turf grass uh, minor, and then work all the construction you can possibly do in the summers to, you know, build a resume. And so I changed schools, changed majors, ended up at uh, Colorado State, and went out on my own, and follow the path. Talk a little bit about your experience after college. I believe you worked with Dick Nugent for a while, mm -hmm. Joe Finger and Ken Dye, but was it most informative when you went overseas? Absolutely, yeah. There's, there's no doubt that, uh, uh, that my, my favorite golf course designers of the past were, were really not. This, it was, it was, my, my major influence are the courses of Ireland. Mm-hmm. And, and the stuff that's interestingly unique. So, you know, I, I wouldn't put a finger on any one guy. I would put a finger on the entire profession as it, as it relates to those kind of courses. And, you know, you talk about, about sanctuary, you know, coming with that sort of background and feel and then your first course being, being, uh, you know, the craziest mountain course ever to be built at the time. Um, <laughs> it took, it took some, it took some doing, but, you know, the, the thing that was always in my mind was going to be, in, playable and fun. So I've, I've always stuck by that. Were there other influences in your early career, people that you worked with that, that, that helped you or helped continue to hone your aesthetic style or push you in a certain direction? You know, I'm, I'm always appreciative to Dick Phelps for leading me uh, generously down, down the right path because it is the right path to follow. After that, I learned, uh, it's funny, my first, uh, my first job was, uh, was with Dick Nugent, and, and uh, because I had summer construction experience, 
I, I, I got the job, and the first day I walked into the office, he has a plane ticket, and I'm going to La Crosse, Wisconsin, to do the remodel, to oversee the remodel on site for uh, for that project. And so that was a pretty nice a pretty nice start. But I was working with a, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Borland, who was um, faithfully on the on the airplane with uh, Payne Stewart that was heading to Houston. Right. And Bruce and I became great friends, and we sort of pushed each other to become better and better, and and you know one day be out on our own and do things like that. So I would I would look back at Bruce as being an early motivator for me. He was a few years older than I was. You know, away we went down the road from that point. I think it's obvious when you see your golf courses now, and you you spoke at length about the influence of Irish links. Did you, uh, as you were learning, or even in school, or or a younger person, did you study the Golden Age architects? You know, Ross Tillinghast, McKenzie, those. No, no, of course I did. I was, I was. I think you go through phases of that where you go, boy, these are the most important guys in the world, and these are the best, and anybody today is is not very good, and these guys only these guys could do it right, and you, and you get you caught up in the poetry and the romanticism of that. And then, as you get into the uh, into the field and, and realize that they were they were very good at what they did, but I don't think they were better at what we're doing today. It was a different world. There were different constraints. Uh, there were different construction methods, and it was totally different. Um, but you know, you have to realize that that you know of the how many three hundred courses that Donald Ross did, or five hundred, I forget what the number is. You know, there were many that he didn't see. He, he would run ads in a newspaper that said, "Send me your your lay. You'd send me your property boundary without contours or anything on it, and I'll send you back a golf course design." And he would put sticks on it and send it back to them. Well, that's a Donald Ross course, but <laughs> it's, you know who knows what it really, really is. So we have to we have to respect the history and, and the aura of things, but we also have to understand that they were guys that put their pants on like we did, and and they had to pay bills too, and. And, uh, you know, it was, it was just an, it, it's an issue where if you, if you're falling into the romanticism of, of the masters of yesteryear, that it might become a romanticism, uh, as a, as opposed to the reality of it. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. You, um, you might know an architect who works out at Georgia here, uh, Mike Young, and he mm-hmm. was fond of calling them the old dead guys. And you just, there's almost like a fetishization of, uh, these, this era and these these architects, and maybe rightly so. Obviously, the best work is still enduring. You know, I'm not sure if talking about uh, building architecture, engineering, or you know, classical music. I'm not sure if people are still composers are still talking about Bach and Mozart all the time, or you know, talking about Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies van der Rohe when they when they're designing new structures. So it just seems like golf is. I don't want to say stuck in the past, but there's a certainly uh, we haven't fully removed ourselves from this era and having these uh, old dead guys be touchstones in the way we talk about architecture. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. It's uh, you, I think there has to be respect there, but you know, yeah, the other thing you have to remember is in the time that they were working, and let's call it the 20s, that that they uh, they their clients, you know, there was unlimited money on, you know, the greatest sites and this and that. But it was, you know, it was a lot of very, very powerful people that were behind them and, and with them, and they were even some of them. And those courses, in many cases, uh, became the elite courses that then became the elite social courses of an area. And that then perpetuates itself, and the importance of that course tends to evolve to even a higher level as time goes on. And so, you know, a lot of the great highly rated courses in America are those of the most influential people. And that's, again, human nature. But that's the path that golf has, has followed. Mm-hmm. And then if you extend that out a little further, you're going to see that, that uh, you know, I, I'm not a great believer that we have done the best that we could have done with expanding the game for the future. And I think we've dropped the ball in quite a few cases. And I think that might be one reason is the preservation of, of, uh, what's the right word, the elitism of golf. And so if you look at the ski industry, for example, which I know, you know, uh, you know, it was dying you know, a couple, couple of decades ago, maybe more. 
and it was it was dying and almost out. And and the ski industry opened their minds. They opened their wallets, and they and they welcomed the new generation of skiing. And now they're you know flying like great guns. Golf did not do that same opening to to the generations that were coming. You know, after after words when when golf was going down, we we missed that that opportunity, and and now we're paying a price for it. I I guess I'm of the belief I don't know if I mean I don't think golf's going anywhere. I think people love to play the game. I could see it maybe heading into a a direction like skiing a little bit, where you have people with a lot of money that can afford to play golf at the nice places, and then a bifurcation of and then a people that have to get crammed onto really inexpensive courses all around the country and that's not desirable it's hard it's hard to to look at the, today's industry and see where there's the opportunity to kind of build courses where they're you know that can accommodate a lot of people and new people there just isn't the there aren't the resources or the desire all the great courses that are being built or they get all the attention over the last 15 years are in places that you can hardly get to or they're private uh, I, I do think we could open up uh, a little be a, l- a little more uh inclusive of of the younger generations compared to comparatively um the 30 year olds that um you know was i don't know played some other sport for how how long it was and and bring the social aspect in where his wife and children can now have their their new social life could revolve around a, a a club or a course and uh in some ways we're not as welcoming as we could be to those people i agree that golf is going anywhere but it, it probably isn't expanding either, and, and uh, from my point of view, that's not good. And from you know others, that's not good. But uh, you know, I think that, that being a little more open toward uh, toward toward that generation um, would be a good thing. Your partner in your design business is Mitch Scarborough. Describe your relationship with him and how you work together. Does he see uh, the process, and does he have the same aesthetic than you do mostly, or do you guys kind of? complement each other in a yin and yang way how does what's the relationship like well you know mitch and i worked together for for quite a long uh quite a long time and we're still we're working together just in a different way and uh, we get together when there's projects out there which you know there's not a huge number of projects out anymore um you know we just opened one in uh, vietnam uh just this month and then we have one beginning in mexico and uh and then a few on the boards but uh there's there's just not the work out there that there was, and so we're we're uh, kind of uh, becoming a little more streamlined and efficient. So, and, but to answer the question, uh, Mitch and I were together for a long time. We were of the same belief that fun was the the aspect and the way to go. Yet we were different in in uh, the roles that we would take. Uh, I was I was pretty much the creative side of it and the technical side and you know we talked about at one time um you know the mountain courses and making things fun and, and what is it more engineering is it more business or is it art well what i forgot to say was that when you create art you then usually create technical problems that have to be solved during the during the, the process and so i would be uh, hours and hours and hours in my studio putting things down that would then create a technical problem that I would then have to solve so I could go back to being creative again. And so it was thousands of times that you'd go creative, technical, creative, technical. And I was kind of the creative, technical part of it. Mitch would then throw the things together in into a CAD form that then was able to be spread to the rest of the, the industry in a, in a viable way. And he and I would constantly talk process and the creative aspect of things and how we could do this. And he was always my great sounding board. And so that's the, that's the part that, that is the most important is to be able to have someone that you trust enough to say, uh, I think you're, uh, I think you're off the reservation. My friend, <laughs> you, need to, you need to jump back on the highway. I have a feeling he uh, used that. Line I think so. Yeah, he did. But, <laughs> but you know, you, unless you unless you put it out, there were many times I thought, oh, he's going to tell me I'm crazy. He goes, no, I like that. That's good. So having having that having Mitch around to be able to 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 be my my filter of sort was the most important part. So because it then allowed us to be able to push the envelope, and you know sometimes you get wrapped up in your own thing so much 
that you you think it's good when it's not, and thus, you know, right. we were able to push the envelope just the right amount, in, in my opinion. And sometimes that was too much, but as I said before, you don't know where the edge of the envelope is unless you go outside of it. So starting with Sanctuary, which I, I believe opened in about 1997, uh, into you know, for the next 10 years, I mean, that was the t- sort of the tail end of the construction boom. And you were as hot as any other architect. You were named Architect of the Year several times. Your courses, uh, several courses were named Course of the Year by different publications. That was a real uh, boom period with Sanctuary, Redlands, Mesha, the, the Creek Club. Um, I'm going to probably forgetting Black Rock, a uh, number of others. And then, of course, you know, the industry hit the wall uh, everything went to shit. So not to be depressing, but what, what's the process like getting work these days? I'm assuming like from that period we just mentioned, uh, you're being contacted, you know, people were actively building golf courses that you were sought out. Yeah. What's it like now for you and how does one, any architect really go about getting jobs these days? (laughs) That's funny because, uh, as you said, then we got, we got our share project and it was a, it was a heck of a good nice run. Uh, but just as people were knocking down our door, coming in with the, you know offers of bigger fees and things, and then uh, October of '08 hit, and uh, everything changed. Obviously, you know people were people were my friends were saying, "Yeah, we lost uh, 20% of our of our business." And I go, "You gotta, uh, we lost we lost our entire industry overnight." <laughs> so mm-hmm. and so uh, things changed, uh, but fortunately because. I had been working in uh, Europe and Asia with IMG. I spent a lot of time in Asia and got to have uh, contacts and things with people and, and was used to working there. And so in 08, uh, we struck out for, for China, for Vietnam, for Korea. And we had quite a nice run from probably 09, 10 to, to 15 when uh, China uh, then outlawed basically all the golf. And since then, we've, as I said, we opened a, a new course in Vietnam. We've opened a couple in Korea. Or, I'm sorry, we've opened one in Korea, have one under construction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, gotten along okay. But, you know, things are, without China in the mix, things are uh, a little slower. And and uh, there's other parts. So, you know, we thought it was best to sort of uh, pull back and uh, become smaller and, and just see what uh, is available out there. So in today's world, it's it's... There's not that many things in the U.S., and there's a few other things that are outside of the U.S., but, you know, there's still projects out there. You just have to be smaller and smarter about it. Yeah, I'm asking because I really actually really don't know how it works, how golf architects get jobs. I know some people, the Dokes and the Coors and Crenshaws and the Hanses now, like I think they have people who come to them with these sites uh, that we all, you know, kind of drool over. But do you... Usually, do you? How do you hear about a project? Do you does somebody contact you, or do you hear about it some way, and then you go out and and yeah, it's it's, it's mostly bid? about um, you know you can get into competitions, and those don't always go that well. I don't put a whole lot of stock in those. But I do more. I, you, everyone has an image and a reputation, and and uh, you know people see a course or play a course that they like, or someone tells someone and. It's, and that's most of it. But it, it's uh, you know that's I, I feel bad for the for the younger kids out there today in this industry that, that haven't been able to form a reputation because there aren't just enough, I'm sorry, just aren't enough projects around to be able to do that. And so that makes it, that certainly makes it the hardest, but, you know, I've still got a, a you know, kind of a reputation for the mountain kind of courses and, and, and other things. So it's, uh, you know, the, the image that we have within the industry is, is, is sufficient to keep us moving forward, uh, and that's that's usually how they happen. People will contact you if you have if you have an image. Renovation work? Do you ever get approached for that, or do you have any interest in you know um, paying the bills that way? Yeah, there's a slight interest, but not so much. Just I was, uh, as I said, when I was with Dick Nugent, my first my first uh, projects with Dick. I think there were five projects that I was overseeing that they were all renovations, and you know they're fun and they're interesting. Uh, but um, unless it's a big renovation, I probably wouldn't be that much interested in, in doing some greens here and driving greens there and that kind of thing. It's, it would be mostly a new project that is considered a renovation. That's what I'd be after. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim, I'll get you no out of here in a minute. Uh, I just got a couple more things. Uh, I know you a little bit. Uh, I get the feeling that you are an avid golfer. How important is it to be a golf, just to love golf, to love to play, to be a freak, to bring your clubs everywhere? Uh, does that describe you, and, and how important <laughs> um, is that? to be a good designer? I play, I play golf um, 
from the middle of June to the middle of August uh, a lot because uh, we spend uh, our summers and raise our family and raise our kids in the summers up on Lake Coeur d'Alene and hang around Black Rock a, a lot. And uh, so I play a lot for those couple of months. And then the rest of the time, I'm, I don't play all that much during the year. It's, um, being that uh, you know we're empty nesters mm-hmm. now, we, we spend time in the winter in Arizona. They, I'm, I'm wanted to... I'm wanted and expected to play more, but it comes from North Dakota where you put your clubs away at the end of September and you don't see them again until April. Um, <laughs> playing golf in the winter is kind of a new thing for me. And I'm not sure. That's not true. They all, well, they all do what you do. They retire not, yeah, to Arizona sure or Florida I'm, uh, for the winter. I'm all winter. in for the, for the golfing all the time. So I love the game. The thing I love most about it is I've played so much and I love the experience part of the game. In answer, do you have to be a good player? Uh, no. You don't have to be a great player to be good at this profession from my point of view, because my point of view is as an emotional experience. The thing that you that has probably been most beneficial to me of being a good player is that you're asked to play in many different situations with many different levels of player. And so I've been able to play with uh, you know, really good players. I've been able to play with you know medium range players. I've been able to play with really lousy players. And doing that, you get a better picture of the overall scope of things because you study. If you're if you're good at what you do, you study how they play, and then you try to keep that in mind when you're throwing stuff down on paper for the next golf course. You know, uh, um, Gail Linegar, uh, who I know you know the name, uh, Dave and Gail Linegar, founders of of Remax Real Estate. And when we did Sanctuary, Dave told me two things. He says, I want to preserve trees, and it's got to be playable by Gail. And if you know Gail, she she's a, a phenomenal lady that was in a float plane accident in Canada in the 80s, and she became paralyzed totally in her left arm, partially in her left leg. And so we put the forward tees, which are called the fox tees, way forward to 4,400 yards for her. And back in those days, that was never done. That was a, a very new and a kind of a extreme concept. And But we did it specifically for her. And then we found out that a huge amount of play happens on those tees for um, you know people that aren't as good or maybe older or they might be handicapped or whatever it might be, they play those tees. But watching Gail Linegar play, with one arm and one and a half legs. I was with her one day at Sanctuary. She shot 112. <laughs> it was amazing. I mean, it just her determination, it, it was one of the joys of golf that I've had is, is playing golf with, with Gail because she is so determined and she so much loves the game that if you could put that spirit into everyone, um, this game would be, would, would be exploding around the world. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you have critics. Uh, uh, and if you hang around the uh, internet in certain corners, uh, they'll, they're a little more vociferous, uh, not just against you, but, uh, you know, there's kind of a gatekeeper mentality about what's good design and what isn't. But one of the things, uh, I remember reading some interactions between yourself and some, some online personalities and people before was, a um, a discussion about cart paths. You just mentioned at Sanctuary, uh, making the golf course playable for different levels of people. And at that golf course, you have to have cart paths to get around. That's just what the site demands. Um, what's your philosophy on cart paths? Well, I think if you're going to do it as a professional, you need to do it well. And I think there's there's a, a lot of people in, in the industry, in my industry, that won't touch cart paths because they. I, I'm not sure why. I, I don't really want to go down that road. But I, I think it's a, a huge part of the professional experience uh, our profession of, of the profession because it's such a big part of the overall experience that that you should do it better rather than not better. You should uh, make lemonade uh, you know, out of lemons because cart paths can be great conveyors of water and drainage if if done properly. Um, and and the the aesthetic and emotional part of cart paths are important. To say that they're not is is putting your head in the sand and. You know, I, I think I remember the discussion you were talking about. I think that was, geez, how long ago was that? 20 years ago? 15 years ago? <laughs> 10, at, 10 at least. It was a long, it was a long time ago. It wasn't that long ago. Anyway, it was, it was, a, it was a, uh, the, my point is that if I'm giving a, given a piece of land, and I, well, let me, let me start that over. If you're given a flat 
totally flat piece of land. Golfers are still going to use, in America, golfers are still going to use cards 70% of the time. That's a proof, maybe 80. That's a proven fact. So if I'm given the opportunity to put golf in an exciting arena or a venue that, that has excitement and hits all of the targets that I want to hit from an emotional point of view, and it, it's going to have cart paths of which on a flat site, everyone's going to use 78 to 80% of the time regardless. I'm going to take the exciting land that gives you the better golf experience versus playing on an incredibly flat site that either has to be totally manufactured or is general by, or, or is boring by nature. And so having said that, in taking the exciting piece of land, you are now mandated that there's a cart path there. So you go from 80% cart use on a flat site to 100% cart use on an exciting site. To me, it's not even a question. And so if you're going to do that, do it well. And so I, I give a great amount of attention to cart paths simply because I'm a professional and I want to do it well. I'm not familiar with all the sites you've worked with, but uh, looking at Awari Dunes, it seemed to be a little more, uh, it's certainly not as extreme as the mountain sites you had in, in Colorado and Idaho. Did you approach it differently, trying to tie holes together? Uh, that, so of course, absolutely. Could walk it? You know, there are, there are some gravel tracks out there that we have, or sand tracks, and every, you know, even sandhills has those. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it's mostly not a cart path type course, even though carts are used because of what we just talked about. Um, but a Warry Dunes is, uh, is a situation where it was just laid on the ground as it is. There was very, very little done there. I think there was only one place that we did any excavation. And, uh, other than that, it, it's just pretty much seated as it was. And it's a really fabulous rolling land that, you know, I think of all the fabulous stuff that's done in in uh, the Sandhills of Nebraska, you know, it, it didn't get a whole lot of acclaim because it came along a little later. But, um, you know, Kearney, Nebraska is a, is a fun little town, but it, this, uh, you know, this golf course is a, is a big time experience. It's a lot more accessible than the stuff in the Sandhills, too, so. Well, it might be, depending on where you live, certainly. Yeah. What's the last great course you saw or played? Hmm. Uh, I think the one that probably, well, it was probably Pine Valley. I played that uh, a few years ago with, with some friends. Mm-hmm. At, uh, it's, you know, there are, and I don't want to seem like I'm against all of the old stuff, because I am not. There is stuff out there that I think deserves it, and there's things out there that I don't think deserve their acclaim. But, you know, Cypress and Pine Valley are, are 100% legit and deserve all of the accolades that they get because they are unique they're different they're odd uh now the it's it the some of the things about it is that uh, the critics uh are more easily accepting of of an older course the the uniqueness and, and oddities of an older course than they are of a newer course and again that goes back to human nature and uh I understand it. It, it, it. it isn't necessarily correct, but it is what it is. Uh, but at the end of the day, when you take your lead from courses like that, you know, here in the U.S., to me, those are those are the two top in the U.S. as far as I'm concerned, and, and uh, they deserve all of what they get. When you're about ready to go play those courses, do you do you get nervous or excited uh, like the, most people would? Oh, I get excited. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then the excitement from from that point. If the excitement builds and builds and gets bigger and bigger, then you know you have a winner. Uh, if if it's a bit of a letdown, then you go, oh, okay, no, that wasn't so great. <laughs> but you have to, again, I look at it purely as a physical structure. I don't look at it as a historical event that a professional uh, tour player accomplished a, a great feat. Uh, I have to push that out of my mind because I'm always looking for ideas that will stimulate new ideas. You know, uh, it's it's funny when you, if you're going to try and, many times I've tried to steal an idea from a golf course. And by the time I get done with it, by the time it goes into my head, on the paper, renovation, this and that, do that, by the time we build it, it's a completely different concept. But it stimulated the idea. And I know you know that because in order to write, you have to have a starting point. And it will be nowhere near where you ended, but that starting point is the most important part of being creative. Mm -hmm. 
and and sort of that's that's kind of what I get from from courses that that have that are great physical structures. Are there ideas that you have for golf design that you haven't had an opportunity to use, or is there a site, uh, a general area of the country that you would love to work? Is there something that exists in your head that you have not been able to realize yet? <laughs> yeah, this is probably pushing the envelope a little bit. I'm an avid scuba diver, and that's what I do in the winters, and uh, I've always wanted to try to figure out how to do an underwater golf course. <laughs> <laughs> Where's Mitch? Exactly. I need Mitch. Yeah. Well, well, we'll look forward to to seeing how that progresses. Uh, that would be something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> it's probably one long hole. <laughs> That's right. Just one long, one long hole, and uh, so scuba gear and one club. Yeah, it might be possible. Hey, you know what I saw? This is totally off track, and nothing you've asked me, but I saw something that was an amazing deal the other day. I have a friend who's whose back is so bad that he can't really play golf. He can't swing. But he went out and bought this club that you put a 22 load, a 22 ammo load in it, and you hold the club down by the ball, and it hits the ball out for 200 yards, or you kind of gauge whatever you want. And he plays with this thing. And he can come out and play golf with us, and we have fun, and he hits little chip shots and putts and things. But this gets him moving down the fairway. I thought, what a what a incredibly innovative idea for inclusion of, of a whole broad spectrum of people i don't even know what it's called but um, it was really a neat deal so it's like a little mechanized yeah. thing does it get the ball in the air yeah it's it, it's a golf club oh see it, it looks just like a golf club and you put a little 22 shell in it without the bullet and you pull the trigger and it, it the the face just like the insert on one of the old persimmon drivers kicks out and it kicks the ball and it, you know it hits it up to 220 yards i think you can hit hood draws, you can hit fades, you, can, <laughs> you never miss a fairway. Does it sound like you're <laughs> shooting a gun? Exactly, yeah. it does. It does, <laughs> just like a twenty-two. <laughs> it's it's awesome. I wish I knew the name of it, but yeah. uh, I don't. I'll, let's, we'll all keep our but, eyes open uh, it, for that. That could be uh, you know, it's, a new avenue. It's things like that, that that just make the enjoyment factor. And for me, the enjoyment factor, for me, as not using it is watching him use it so he could be there and the joy he got from it. And so just opening your mind to things like that, to, to have more inclusion in the game, would be a good thing. I'm not ashamed to say it. I'm a, I'm a fan of your courses. I like to play them. I, I think they're fun. And there's nothing like seeing the ball rolling around on those, those greens in directions <laughs> you either intend or do not intend. Jim, feed the ball. Feed the ball. Yep, feed the ball. Jim, thanks for your time. It was great talking to you. I appreciate it. Derek, always a pleasure. Okay, Thank you. take care. Well, that was Jim Ng. We didn't quite get to the bottom of everything we probably could have, but I thought our conversation went well. I hope you learned about who he is as an architect, what makes him tick, and why, and to never give up on Van Morrison, even if he is singing the blues. In the meantime, keep your eyes open for Ang's first underwater golf course, or possibly a new 22 caliber golf design, which I'm sure will be destined for Golf Digest's Best New Cartridge Course Award, an award which he can hang next to all of his other awards on his wall. And remember, if you're feeling low on endorphins, you know what to do. Get yourself to the nearest Jim Eng golf course stat. You'll find what you're looking for. Thanks again for joining. Check back at feedtheball.com and thedunkinlist.com for upcoming episodes in which I'll have even more discussions with more architects and other influential figures from the game of golf. If you like the show, subscribe to it on iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, feed the ball. Feed the ball.